Ecclesiastes chapter 5 is going to be our text. I think you can find it on page 555. That's Ecclesiastes chapter 5. If you're looking in the Pew Bible, you'll definitely want it open. The more I read this book um, and study it, and then I glance over and hear echoes of books like 1 Kings, historical books, uh, that I do think that this is King Solomon. Uh, we, we don't know that for certain because uh, the author of this book doesn't disclose himself by name. It's anonymous. But Kohelet is the author, which is just a word that means, uh, is translated Ecclesiastes, which is a word that means the, uh, the teacher or, the, or the, prop, the, the preacher who gathers people together. He's on a search. He's on a mission to uh, discover significance and meaning in life and enjoyments. And in chapter 2, he says to himself, I said in my heart, come now. And I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And so where does he go? Where, where, what are the roads he travels on? What are the avenues that he uh, you know, investigates? It's things like comedy and education and work and gardening and sensual relations. And, and he can experience because after all, he's richer and wiser than anyone anywhere. In fact, he says in chapter 2, whatever my eyes desired... I, I didn't keep from it. If, if I sought and, and wanted a particular pleasure, I went in full gusto and got it. And then he says in chapter 2, verse 11, I considered all that my hands not only had, had gathered, but had done, right? And the toil that I expended in doing it, and behold, all of it was, you should know the refrain by now, vanity. It's, it's fleeting. It's it's empty, it's brief, it's transient, it's but a breath. What does he reflect on next? In a fallen world where people are trying to live out life under the sun, not necessarily under God, what does he discover? I know you just had a seat, but uh, let's stand in uh, deference to God's word. We're beginning in verse 8. Hear this, this is the word of God. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there is yet a higher one's over them. But this is a gain, but there is this is gain for a land in every way a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. But this full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And, his, and he is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he has come from his mother's womb, he shall go again. Naked has he come and shall, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there, what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and in much, much vexation and sickness and anger. 
Verse 18, behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and to rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's ask his help. I pray, God, that you would come right now and dwell and work and shine and comfort and convict by the power of your spirit. We're leaning in, Lord, to a subject that is often tied to to shame and hurt and anxiety and conflict in marriages and families and workplaces. And Lord, if our hearts are hard this morning, I pray you'd soften them. If our minds are closed, I pray you would open them. If our priorities are out of whack, I pray you'd fix them. For Christ's sake, amen. This past week, I was reading in The Atlantic uh, an article entitled, America is running out of COVID virgins. Interesting. Yeah, I I read it. You know, I mean, now that we found out that of all people, uh, President Biden himself uh, now has tested positive for COVID like every other world leader just about. People begin to naturally ask that question. How many people in America have been infected by COVID? Well, according to to some of their research in the, the site, the places that they cited, It's 82% have been infected once. Some of us have been more blessed and had two or three experiences with it now. But at least 82% of America has had coronavirus at least once. Something tells me this is highly contagious, right? (laughs) This is highly contagious. Uh, But what if there is something that has infected even more people and it's even more deadly? What would that be? What would that be? It's It's not cancer. It's not, it's not heart disease. What would be that condition? More contagious and more dangerous. It's something called affluenza. Affluenza, as one PBS special defined it, it's a noun. It could be the bloated, sluggish, and unfulfilled feelings that result from efforts to try to keep up with the Joneses. Affluenza is an epidemic. It could be an epidemic of stress, overwork, waste, and indebtedness caused by dogged pursuits of the American dream. It also could be a noun that is an unstable addiction to economic growth. Of course, this is not a disease. This is, this is uh, maybe a pseudo-psychological condition. It is an outlook. But really the way that we would summarize affluenza is it's a garden variety sin called materialism. Right? We're, we're, we're familiar with it. And we live in a stream and in a current and in a culture and a society. We know this full well. Whether, whether it's the, all the voices, whether it's the media or whether it's marketing that says, what you need to do amongst all things is acquire more. Get more. Earn more. I mean, honestly, let's go and ask a group of high school students, if we were to gather a, a group of middle school and high school students, and they, we would say to them, what is your goal in life? I'm looking at some of our students right now. What is your goal in life? Please, sons, don't answer. Your goal, what would they say? What would they say? Get rich. 
I want to get, that is the aim and goal. I want to get rich. Listen, I, I can sympathize, honestly, when I was your age, back in middle school, uh, there was a particular R&B band, R, R&B band that came out, Callaway, with a song called, uh, I Want Money. I can still envision my brother I, walking around the house, I want money, lots and lots of money. I would, I would keep going, but it'll just embarrass my middle school and teenage kids. I want the pie in the sky, they sang. I want lots and lots of money. So don't be asking me why. I want to be rich. I want to be rich for a little love, peace, and happiness. I want my cake, and I want to eat it too. And the writer of Ecclesiastes says, wow, that's profound. I said that 3,000 years ago, and there is nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. Now, to be fair, kids, adults feel and act and think very much the same way, far more sophisticated. No one would just come forward and say, I want to be filthy rich. But, honestly, we wouldn't say that that so bluntly, but honestly, you might even say, I don't even care that much about stuff. Money doesn't impress me. But the struggle for and the craving of things like control and safety and stability and status and comfort and clothing, we often believe that money can buy us these things, right? So it's, it's not the money itself, it's, the, it's what we perceive that it will, it will purchase and acquire for us. The truth is people who struggle with materialism and the love of money are often blind to it. In other words, you got it and you don't realize that you have affluenza. I mean, think about it, right? Think about, think about other sins and other maladies of the soul that you have. If you're committing adultery, typically you know it, right? And you hide it. But here we are in America, in the Western affluent West, and we are struggling all over the place with materialism. We don't claim it. We deny it. But yet we flaunt it. Think about that. The Bible often speaks of wealth as a significant handicap. It can dull our senses and perception. It can cloud our judgment. It can allure us at times to violate. I know my own conscience The problem is identified early on in Scripture. Even in the Exodus, it's told, right? When Moses gives his final sermon to the people as they are to possess the the promised land, he says to them in Deuteronomy 8, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Think of this. It's sometimes hard, right, to... To remember the Lord when we are trusting in the things that we possess and have. It's for good reason that Jesus uses words like, phrases like, the deceitfulness of riches. Why does he label it, describe it that way? By the way, if you're singing that tune still, I want money, lots and lots of money. Sorry, I got that song stuck in your head. But here, my friends is a sober warning from the Apostle Paul inspired of God. 1 Timothy 6 verse 9 says, those who want to get rich 
fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Don't you see? Don't you see there's worse things than COVID? There's worse things than being poor. How on earth can we as... How can any soul really survive in the Western affluent place that we find ourselves with the abundance of materialism, wealth, and luxury? How on earth can we survive, not be swept away with these things? I mean, obviously we need wisdom. We need Him who is wisdom. We need Christ. We need, we need the mind of Christ and the heart of Christ. We have wisdom here. Let's look at our text. Here's how I want to break it down. I have it listed, uh, these three headings. The reality of corruption in those first two verses. The instability of wealth, verses 10 to 17. And then lastly, the joy of God's gifts in 18 through 20. So first of all, the reality of corruption. In verse 8, he's speaking here, the teacher of injustices that happen against those who are poor, those who are less prosperous. Often it's these people who are oppressed. It's these people, and because they lack money, they oftentimes lack advocacy and they lack, they lack opportunities. They are not defended. They find that justice, uh, if it's there, grinds rather slowly. And then the latter part of verse 8 and going into verse 9, scholars aren't even exactly sure how to interpret this. They aren't exactly sure how to... Uh, to even translate it, because it is rather confusing. But Coalette, the teacher here, observes the fact that less people advocate, even at the level of, of, of king and governor or whatever, don't advocate for the poor who maybe need it the most. And yet we shouldn't be surprised by this. It's not right, but it's not uncommon. It's not right, but it's not uncommon. You I mean, even with the prosperity of any given civilization, if you study it, comes the need for more infrastructure. And inevitably, governments grow and grow and grow and grow. And there's complexity and there's levels and there's layers of bureaucracy. I think that's part of what at least it's pointing to in verse 8 and verse 9. And with that can come good things, right? There can come a governing model or, or, or a sense of checks and balances, but what also can come with that is mutual protection and corruption. And of course, people relying upon the government as if that is the source of life and stability. Because of the love of money, there can be and often is bribes and corruption and overtaxation. And even if you have a good king and a wise king, you cannot entirely eradicate things like oppression Corruption and injustices. Isn't this right? So he's observing this. And then he goes on to talk about the instability. So that's part of the effect. But then part of the instability of wealth he picks up in verse 10. That's the vanity, right? The vanity of prosperity. How and why on earth, down through the ages, is it that people who have less, statistically, if not altogether factually, are the ones who are more likely to be happy. <laughs> and yet, we still think that's a weird recipe. It's counterintuitive to us. 
the world past and the world present has never seen or known of a culture like ours in the prevalence of prosperity and wealth that we have. Honestly, think about it. There, are, there would be ancient kings who would covet and envy what the poorest of Americans have by way of comfort and convenience and access to health care and opportunities. Think of this. The writer here is commending to us, reminding us of the instability, well, and, and really the inability, if you think of it, the instability and the inability of wealth to deliver. Possessions and wealth stuff is more apt to disappear than appear. <laughs> it's, it's stuff is more apt to disappoint us than to satisfy us if we only seek it and only enjoy it under the sun. We can be disappointed and we are. Don't, don't get, I mean, I know. Uh, whether it's by theft or uh, the market or, uh, you know, people being, you know, stingy or whatever. You find yourselves uh, sad when you, you, you lose money. But we also feel sad even when we have much of it. That's why verse 10 is so true. What does it say? Let's look at the text again. You've heard me quote this verse before. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his or her income. How much is enough? We know, we know the answer to that. How much is enough? Just a little bit more. Doesn't matter. You could have said that 10 years ago. You're right around the corner. And then 10 years from now, you might be saying to yourself, just a little bit more. Do you have enough? Do you have too much? No, no, no. I know plenty of people have more stuff than I do. It's all good. It's all good. My ambition and my my plans and designs. What is it? It's vanity. It's fleeting. It's a vapor. How can money and possessions and materialism disappoint us? Well, he explores part of it here. Let's look at it. I, I see at least three things here, beginning in verse 11. As one person I, I heard, uh, one teacher I heard comment on it says, it's the entourage effect in verse 11. Let's read it, right? Once you have money, when goods increase, verse 11, uh, they increase who eat them, the parasites. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? So if you have more money, then you need more accountants and you need more consultants. Sorry, Jay. And, and you need more, you know, you need more attorneys. Sorry, Robin. Um, you know, but, you know, you, and you need, you definitely need more law enforcement, you know, advocacy. Sorry, Rich. You need, you need people in your life to serve and to sustain all of the things that we have. People want to, when you have, when you have more, people are impressed and they also want a piece of it. The second thing is what Phil Riken called insomnia by indigestion. Right? Verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Now let's think about this just for a second. I've heard it put this way. It's only in America, right? Well, let's just put it broader. Only in modern culture, right? Think of this. 
is where we have to spend tons of money on things like uh, diet plans and books and, and, and exercise equipment and subscriptions to this to, to essentially try to improve our bodies from the effects of all of the abundance that we have and the ease and comfort that we enjoy. Think of this, right? I mean, the, the hardworking people that I saw back in February in factories and in fields in Bangladesh, they, do they have a hard time sleeping at night? No. I mean, can you imagine, let's just think of it this way. This is someone coming from someone who loves running, okay, and, 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 and owns a watch that keeps my steps. But can you imagine someone who lives in an agrarian society coming home, sunset, after a hard day's work and saying, I, I think I'm going to go for a run before dinner. Say, what? Yeah, I need to get my steps in. What? But in the meantime, here we are. We have so much abundance that at times we eat in excess so much by way of rich foods that we have indigestion and we can't even be comfortable sleeping. Third thing he sees are these sickening evils that begin in verse 13. Verse 13, it's people who trust in money, then they lose it. Verse 14, it's lost in a bad venture. By the way, that's not saying it was stolen and it wasn't just squandered away on foolish things. It's just accidents happen. Things go sour. The market crashes. I don't know if you've read of, uh, read of people who were going from being a billionaire or a millionaire overnight to next to nothing because of cryptocurrency folly. Tragedy happens. Deceit and injustices occur. Does the prospect of this unduly leave you, my friends, racked with anxiety at times? Or consider the tragedy of someone who's, who's been striving all of their life to gain wealth and then they can't actually enjoy it because it was constantly their aim and their end. And yet you can't take it with you. It just says that. It's, it's the way you come. It's the way you go with nothing. We're all going to die. It's like a man or a woman who has got so much abundance and resources that they could travel to any cuisine they could buy any meat or spices. They could go out to eat any day of the week, every meal of the day. And yet they have no taste buds. Consider how that, that would be tragic, would it not? What is more valuable, riches or contentment? Martin Luther used to say, he who is content is rich. And yet we find hope, don't we? We, find, we know that he observes all of these things by way of the instability and the inability to, to really provide satisfaction and joy. And then he says in these last few verses, this is my last heading, it's the joy of God's gifts. We know that wealth and possessions are not the problem, right? The Bible speaks of godly, faithful people who were wealthy. And plus, verse 19 here in our text Look at it with me. What does it say? It's everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions. It's a gift. If we have it, 
We, we, we know. It's, that's not the problem. The problem is how do we relate to those gifts, right? Think of it. Trying to enjoy the gifts that God gives by, by way of talents and abilities and resources and uh, possessions. And then trying to enjoy them without reference to or honor for or love for the gift giver is like having all of those possessions and no ability to, to enjoy them. It's like the person who has no taste buds. Truly, the amount of possessions we have are a gift from God. And by the way, don't forget this gift either. The gift and the power, as our text says here in verse 19, the ability to enjoy those as gifts from God. So it's one thing to see it and to possess it. It's another thing to understand it and enjoy it for what it is and what it's not. Man, I want that, don't you? I want to have that kind of faith. I want unbelief inside of my soul to die. And love for God to grow as I look at these gifts. 1 Timothy 6 again. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And it's almost like he woke up that morning having a devotional in Ecclesiastes. Because this is what Paul writes. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these things, we will be content. And by the way, this really struck me this week. Contentment is not to be confused with laziness. Right? I mean, think about this. We work, we study, we, we make goals, we make plans, we strategize. But as Christians, we are not to be those who covet what our neighbor has. God gave it, and God can take it away. And we can walk and take a step back and say, yeah, and blessed be the name of the Lord. Again, 1 Timothy 6, which I think is just kind of the perfect New Testament echoing of our passage. As for the rich in this present age, okay, I know I'm speaking to all of you now. Charge them not to be haughty, speaking now to myself too, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Set your heart on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Let me, let me, let me close like this, okay? I want to ask some questions, and they're, they're more or less age and stage, you know, particular specific, okay? Maybe this would lead us into some application. Here's one, young people. I love you. Young people, I love you. There's no but to that. Here's a question, though. Do you envision or have you ever envisioned pursuing a career path that fits so well with your gifts and your interests? And you say, yeah, but I can't do that because I'm not making enough money. I know I can get an amen in this crowd when I say we need more teachers and nurses and artists. Middle-aged people, marketers are coming after you and me trying to sell every investment and insurance product I could possibly imagine. But here's my question. What is it in that phase of, say, 65 to 80 gives you, what, what is it that you envision at that season of your life 
that you place confidence in that will bring you joy and peace. If it's retirement money, if it's frankly anything other than God, it's idolatry. Even if it's your kid's prosperity and flourishing. Here's, a, here's, a, here's another group, older folks, however you identify yourselves as old, is there any bitterness when, not if, but when you compare yourselves with others? Is there sorrow over things lost? Are there relationships that you look back with with regret because you overlooked or you neglected them in your pursuit of wealth or possessions? Really, for all of us at every stage and age, I want to ask you the question, does work seem like just a bitter end to get what we think we need? Money. Why are we so willing to go into debt? I mean, deep debt. To get the things that we think that we need or want. Ask yourself. Maybe here's, a, here's, a, here's an application. Go from here and ask yourself the question. Maybe with the help of others in the, in, in the conversation with your friends or family and say this. Why is it that we are so quick to identify affluenza in someone else, but we are so slow to identify it in us? Think about it. I I think to myself, I I want to be, I've been mulling over this this week, I've been mulling over this. I I want to be in that stage of life if God doesn't come back, and I pray he comes back sooner, I want to be in that season of life where I'm at peace and have contentment and joy, not because of anything related to possessions, but because, not because I know that I'll have money then and there, but because I know God's there. And he is my portion. God's there. I don't know what's there. I know that God will be, and he promises that he lacks nothing. He will never leave me nor forsake me. Money, you have heard it said, is a good servant, but it is a bad master. Money's a good servant, could be a great tool. It's a bad master. You can only have one master. We heard it read just earlier in Matthew 6. Jesus spelled it out. You cannot love and serve God and love and serve money. You will serve one or the other, but not both. It's not possible. We can only have one master. And if, if money is, then Jesus is not. I mean, friends, God, brothers and sisters, God knows the twisted dynamics of our own heart and thinking. He knows how we love money. He knows how we find security. Even if we don't care about the bling or care about the bank account, we still perceive and chase after security or safety or comfort or ease. And we're deceived into thinking that money is always the way to procure those things. And in that pursuit, it's led us honestly to dark places, to harm, to not love other people well. It's led us into enslavement like like sin does. And yet, God offers us hope. This is who God offers hope to. To those and only those who would repent. And repentance is a turning away from sin and a lifestyle of looking the other way. And surrendering to Jesus who is fully worthy of all of our trust and all of our allegiance. Because he has conquered and paid for our sins. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Paul, inspired of God, says... For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
Though he was rich, yet for your sake and my sake became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Not talking about money here. We're talking about rich and God's love and favor and grace and rich in, in, in hope, rich in an inheritance that can't fade or spoil or be crushed by uh, the market's downturn in inflation. Jesus, my friends, is a better master. Please, in big ways, in small ways, and in every way, in every area, surrender to Jesus as Lord. Our Heavenly Father is so good. He is so generous. He is a gift giver. And the greatest and the sweetest gift that He gives us is our knowledge of Him. You ever hear someone, you ever, ever, ever hear someone praying for you? I mean, you might have half fallen asleep, but you lean in at that point. I know sometimes people have a little bit of commentary on you or for you when they're in the middle of praying. Okay, fair enough. My mom certainly did over the years. Uh, love her. Uh, but if you hear someone praying for you, you lean in. And Jesus prays for his disciples, for his children, his sheep. And he's, he prays not that you'll be rich and healthy and wealthy and prosperous and comfortable and all those things. His prayer for you and for me is that we would know God. The knowledge of God, which is a relationship, that is eternal life, that they might know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Pray with me. Father, we ask that you would forgive us. Even now, Lord, as we just take a moment to to consider and ponder and take inventory as to why we don't want to acknowledge how materialism impacts us. Please have mercy. Would you forgive us for loving money, for chasing money, for worrying about money, for getting angry about money, for thinking that we're better than other people because we have money, for neglecting relationships with others on account of money. Lord, if our economy is supposed to tank and collapse, please, Lord, let it be that we perhaps might have revival and renewal and, hum- and humble ourselves before you. Help us to be humble as your sons and daughters, to be shrewd with money and yet to be good wise managers, I pray you would make us more generous because we're so persuaded by your generosity and the vanity of prosperity. Lord, grow us in love for you and the things of eternity and glory and joy inexpressible. Would you please turn our goals and our longings to be in line with your kingdom? Lord, we need wisdom this day. We need guidance. We need Jesus. So we pray now in his name. And as he taught his disciples, saying together, Our Father.